Welcome to A Transforming Word with Pastor Bill Buffington. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Inglewood. Today on A Transforming Word... He didn't die on the cross and raised from the grave so I could be mostly delivered, so I could have most of my freedom. He died that I could have it all. There was a period of my walk with the Lord where I had contented myself. I was content to just be better than I used to be. I was looking at the old version of me that belonged to the devil, was bound with sin and sexual sin and alcohol and greed and everything else. And I'm like, well, this version of me is much better than that. So I'm good. Not realizing that even at that point, God was still saying, no, I want more. In our achievement-based society, it's safe to say that most of us are constantly trying to better ourselves. Whether it's through therapy, self-help books, or medications, every day we're trying to be better. In today's message, Pastor Bill wants you to know that no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to fix yourself like you intend to. The wisdom of the world will always fail you, and you'll constantly be chasing what you desire. Seek after God's wisdom and be transformed into the person you truly want to be. Now, here's Pastor Bill in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, as he begins his message, The Church of Pergamos. We're in the part of Revelation that covers the seven churches, and as we're making our way through, Jesus is giving his evaluation of these churches. And so the book of Revelation, the word revelation means what? Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, we're going to have to do it better. The book, the, the word revelation means what? The unveiling. Everybody say unveiling. Everybody, anybody think of like when someone does like a picture or when they did like the statue of Shaq at Stableson, they got it covered up and they're doing the reveal and everybody's waiting and they got the thing covering it and they pull the thing off and it's revealed. That's what the word revelation means, unveiling. Now, what is the book of Revelation unveiling? Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So that means on every page of this book, uh, we're going to ask the question, when we get done with today's study, we're going to ask the question, what does this teach me about Jesus? Because we're learning about him on every page. So in chapter one, we got kind of an image, a picture of the glorified Christ. And we saw that gave us some insight into who he is, what he's coming to do. Chapters two and three, as we look at his evaluation of the seven churches, As Jesus gives his evaluation, we are going to learn what he loves, what he hates, how he wants the church to behave, how he doesn't want the church to behave. So all these things are going to teach us and inform us that we might know him better, but also that we might conform into his image in a greater way. Amen. So that's what we're paying attention to as we've gone through it. This is the third of seven churches. We looked at the church of Ephesus, which was the church that had left their first love. We looked at the church of Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. They were under persecution. This week, we're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos, and we're going to find that they are a church that is in compromise. So everybody look at uh, Revelation 2.12, and it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so let's talk a little bit. I want to give us a little information on the church in Pergamos. Uh, this was a, it was an Asian area, Asia area in Asia. Uh, they did have a Jewish community of believers. There were there were Christians in this area, but Christians were not the the main attraction. They weren't they, they were the minority in terms of what's believed. Uh, Pergamos was given over to idolatry in a lot of different ways. So they had a strong pagan presence. Uh, in Pergamos. That means that everywhere around them, people were worshiping other deities. Um, 
They, they had money. They were prosperous. It was the first of the cities in Asia Minor to be given over to the worship of Caesar. So imperial, they call it imperial cult worship in its province. So they had a lot going on. As we get a little further into the study, we'll look at some of the specific beliefs and practices that they had going on. But this is something for us to consider because why is a church in this area struggling with compromise? Well, they're, they're immersed in an area where nobody's doing what they're doing. They're unique in that. So anybody that's ever tried to walk with God, but you've been immersed in, maybe you've been in an area where everybody else was doing other stuff. I, I did high school ministry for many years. And whenever I would have kids graduate high school ministry and say they were going to go to the military and I would stay in touch with them. Um, the number one struggle and challenge for my military kids was that they're like, man, everybody's drinking. When we, when we finally get a break, everybody went. And it was just the struggle for them to be the only one that was going to not go to the thing or not. It was a struggle to compromise. The temptation to compromise was strong because they were immersed in this environment where everybody else was going the wrong way. And so we want to check our own lives for that, right? Uh, we want to evaluate our own lives, check ourselves out. Is there compromise? Are we setting ourselves up? Are we putting ourselves in situations where we'll be tempted to compromise, right? If you came out of a background of partying and getting drunk and clubbing, um, there's some people you probably shouldn't be around when you get going with the Lord. Amen? Say it like you mean it. Um, they're, they're just, there's some things that, you know, when you first get going, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to make it. When I first got saved, I came from all of that. And so there was no way I was going to continue with Jesus the way I was believing he was calling me to walk and hang out with the fellas. Uh, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't strong enough yet. I understood that if I wouldn't hung out with the fellas, everything that comes with hanging out with the fellas was coming with that package. And so the Lord used some scenarios in my life to, to kill the compromise. I'm, I'll share this with you guys. This was a divide. It was a it was a. A defining moment in my walk with the Lord early on. And I look back now and I look at how the Lord knows how to use things for us. Um, one of my best friends growing up, uh, we would celebrate when it was my birthday. He would set up the turn up. You know, we were we were best friends from like kindergarten. So when my birthday came up, he would set it up. We had drinks and party and girls and yip yap yap. When it was his birthday, it was my job to set it up. Well, his 21st birthday was coming up and we had pre-planned the 21st. There were plane tickets for Vegas. The it was all everything was planned to go to Vegas and do everything we know Vegas is all about, right? Then I got saved before the trip. Months before the trip, I get saved. I get radically, I get born again. God's got a hold of my life. I'm not hanging out with him or anybody else. I haven't drank in months. I met my wife. I'm not running around with all these girls. I'm trying to convince her I'm really saved, so she'll marry me. Um, like my whole life in six months, it was a whole different dude. And then his birthday was coming up. And I remember he hit me up. He was like, hey, man, you, you ready? And I was like, oh, man, that's, that's a tough one. You know? And I, I, I started to say, like, well, maybe I'll go, but really just I won't drink, which I was not capable of if I be real. But I wasn't being real. I was like, maybe this is just, just I'll go. And I remember this because I was still trying to convince Mika that I was saved. And she was still like, mm, I'm not sure if you're really saved. You can rough around the edges and stuff. So. I told her I was what I did. I tried to tell her the situation to get her to kind of agree that maybe you probably should go for your best friend. I was like, yeah, you know, to be kind of dogged out if I don't go. And we already she was like, this is what she said. I'll never forget it. She said, I know I know you'll do what God tells you to do. And she just left me with that. She didn't she didn't say this is what you should do. I disagree if you don't go. She's like, 
I know you'll do what God tells you to do. And I was like, mm, no. it, was, it was like kryptonite, you know. I was pretty sure if I went on that trip, when I came back, she wasn't going to be waiting for me, you know. So I didn't go, praise God. And I, and I, and I, I believe had I gone, that that would have probably set me all the way back. Um, but I was very tempted to compromise in that moment because these are, you know, this is just, that was the world I came from, needed to get away. Compromise can happen for a lot of reasons. We'll look at why it happened in this church. And I'm praying that you would consider yourself, everybody here, just there is compromise. God's going to tell you what to do with it. Um, and hopefully we'll leave without it. Amen. All right. So he says uh, to the angel in the church in Pergamos, so to the pastor of, of this congregation, this church is in an area that's given over to idolatrous worship and everything else. These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. Now, to each of the churches, Jesus presents himself as one of the one of the descriptions that we saw in Revelation one. When we get the image of the glorified Christ. So to this church, he says, I am the one who comes and has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, for years when I would look at that, I was always, my immediate thought, when you think of the two-edged sword, what do you think of? Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God, sharpening the two-edged sword. That's what I always think of. But I found in looking up the words that it's different in here. So the Hebrews 4.12, sharp two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and bones and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you look up that word in the Greek in Hebrews 4.12, it's makaria. It's a small curved sword. Now, the word for sword here in the Greek is rumphia. Rumphia, that's, I don't speak Greek, but it's around about like that. What it means is it's a large sword. This was a sword more so that was used for when you see in Hebrew, I'm no, sorry, when you see in Romans 13, when it talks about our government and our officials and how they don't bear the sword in vain. It was a judicial sword used for punishment and execution of those that disobeyed. Um, some would say these swords used right, that they would swing them, they could chop a man in half from the waist or from skull to crotch uh, in half that way. So I guess if this was this one, this one ain't sharpened up. Y'all got to worry, um, you know, or I, I, I would already be cut by it. But uh, it was to do that. It was for judicial. So when Jesus says, look, I'm coming. To you guys, I'm the one that's coming with this sword coming out of my mouth. It may still refer to word, but he's, Jesus is coming back to do judgment. Um, every time in the New Testament you see this sword used, it's in reference to God bringing judgment on those that have opposed him. Amen. So he says to this church, so it, this makes a difference. And Jesus says, look, I'm coming to you, but I'm coming to you as the one with that judicial punishing executionary sword coming out of my mouth. That means I'm coming to clean up some stuff. There's some problems that I want to deal with. So this is kind of important for us to consider, right? How would Jesus come to you? Because as you look at each church, right, if you think about the, the persecuted church, he came to them and he says, hey, I'm the one that, that, that was dead, but I live again, reminding them that don't not to fear death. But if Jesus is saying, I'm coming to you and I got something coming out of my mouth that's to do judgment, uh, that's to do punishment, that would be a hint that I need to get it right. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my mom, you know, my, we, we got spanked with belts. That was a, that was a spanking uh, instrument in my household. So belts used to get hung on doors. Um, you know, my dad was real smooth. My dad, you know, you, guys, you, you hold a belt, make it snap. snap. That was my dad. He would just snap, snap, and, and you knew you was going to get it. My mom, if she were coming with a belt, um, my mom wasn't bluffing with the belt. If she was coming with the belt, that means we had crossed the limits and she was going to come whoop us and, and, you know, we was going to have to cut it out. So um, Jesus coming with the sword in his mouth, he's not bluffing. 
He's coming to do business with this sword. Amen. So he comes at them as the one who has a two-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13, Jesus says what he says to all the churches, I know your works. And Jesus would say that about each one of you guys in this room, myself included. Jesus would say, I know your works. I know everything that you're doing. Every good thing, I know about it. Every negative thing, I know about it. Every secret thing, he knows about it. Hebrews 4.13 says, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And so when he tells them here, I know your works. Again, we've talked about this three times now. That's going to hit you different based on what your works are. Uh, What we're going to see with this church, they have one commendation, and Jesus is careful to give them any commendations that he can. If anything you're doing right, he's like, I know about the right thing that you're doing. I'm going to let you know about it. This church, however, has some things wrong, and he knows about those things, too. And again, that's something for us to consider. We're sitting in church this morning. Hopefully, we come to be transformed, to be changed. And if you're sitting here, maybe there's some things that God would say, you know what? You got this right. I'm proud of you for this. Good job on that. But maybe there's some things over here where God would say, but I've talked to you about this, and you haven't heeded my word. I want you to, I want these things. God, God wants to all of you. You guys know that? He didn't die on the cross. I, 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 it was, it was, It was freeing for me and helpful for me to understand that Jesus didn't die so I could be mostly free. He didn't die on the cross and raised from the grave so I could be mostly delivered, so I could have most of my freedom. He died that I could have it all. There was a period of my walk with the Lord where I had contented myself. I was content to just be better than I used to be. Uh, I was looking at the old version of me that belonged to the devil, was bound with sin and sexual sin and alcohol and greed and everything else. And I'm like, well, this version of me is much better than that. So I'm good. Not realizing that even at that point, God was still saying, no, I want more. I'm going to take you further. There are more victories to get. Do you guys know that as long as you walk with God, there are going to be more victories for you to go get? At this stage in my walk with the Lord, which I got saved in 1995, I'm not fighting the same battle I was fighting in 95. I'm not getting delivered from alcohol. I've been free of alcohol since then. I'm not being delivered from, you know, fighting folks in the street. I haven't done that in, a, in quite some time. Don't test me. Um, but it's, it's, they're new challenges, right? They're new things that God is saying, I'm going to deal with that now. And I believe that this will continue until I get to heaven. I'll, I'll be an unfinished product until I make it into the kingdom of God. I'll be a work in progress. Never going to be perfect this side of heaven, but I should be better. Amen. And the way we get better is when the God puts his finger on something that we say, yes, Lord, and we yield to him and we fight the battle and we confess our sins and we we let conviction have its perfect work. And and then we get over that thing. And then two years from now, there'll be some different thing that the Lord is dealing with you on. So here he says, I know your works. And he tells them that he knows where they dwell. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, that's a big deal because he's saying, look, I know you guys live in a jacked up area. I know where you guys live. It is not popular to be Christians. You guys live where Satan's throne is. Now, this is what we know about Satan. Satan is not like God. He's not omnipresent, right? Satan's not present everywhere. But God says where you guys are is where Satan's throne is. Here's why Jesus said that about them. This is some of the things that were going on in Pergamos. Um, One, they were known of their worship of Asclepius, it's a, it was one of the gods that they worshiped. The symbol of this god, which was on their coin, was a serpent. 
Now, you know how on our, mon- our money we got in God we trust and we got the different presidents, even though we don't trust in God as a country, but we got that on our money. I, I hope they don't ever take that off. I still like it to be on my money, you know. But here they had, they had this little serpent, and that was one of the gods that they worshipped. It was a serpent. They worshipped many gods. Uh, one was called Demeter. One was Athenia. One was Dionysus. Um, they worshipped all these different pagan gods, and they worshipped Caesar. They had the, the worship of Caesar that was brought into this area. They were known for having a giant altar to Zeus. It was 120 by 112 feet, and it overlooked the city's citadel. So when you came into this area, it was clear, like, man, this place is given over to darkness, to wickedness, to idolatry. Think of some areas that we know of that we would say, man, that area is given over to specific kinds of sins. What are some areas that you guys are aware of in our context that we would say that area is given over to some certain sins? Everybody say Vegas, right? Vegas is, we, they call it sin city. Vegas is given over to drunkenness, gambling, sexual sin, all of that. People go to Vegas to, you know, do some stuff that they think they can leave it in Vegas, but that's not quite possible. Um, Vegas is given over. Where else would you guys say are some given over? New Orleans given over. There's you know, we got the witchcraft and stuff like that going on there. Where else? San Francisco. Uh, I heard Amsterdam. I don't know what they're giving over to, but oh, I'll take your word for it. I've never been to Amsterdam. Here's the thing. Just like we know in our setting, there are areas that are given over to certain sins. Jesus is saying to them, I know where you guys dwell. I know it's rough, but I want you to know that that's not going to be an excuse for them. I know you guys, you guys live where Satan's throne is. You are in the thick of that that's not going to be a, an excuse for them to be given over themselves though and so if you're in the thick if God's got you in rough area difficult grounds God's I know you in tough area but you guys know that God needs strong believers in tough areas right we can't look at an area and say I know a pastor right now in Vegas his name is Derek uh Niter 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 I met him really, really good guy solid guy real passion for evangelism and he's an awesome bible teacher and I look at him and I think man I pray for him when I think of him when I when I see his picture on the thing I pray for him I'm like God you've got him in an area where the need is horrendous but he's there with a heart for God and a passion to reach people for Jesus in a tough area now God wouldn't want him to leave and find some nice Christian area you know I heard there's a great community of Christians over here I'm gonna go join them God's like, no, I need you in a rough area, bro. I, I need, but I, I can't have you. Now, my brother, he can't start gambling. I can't, I can't find out that, you know, he, he, he's out there gambling with the folks. Like, you know, I'm just trying to connect with him, you know. <laughs> uh, he can't. That would be compromised. God has put him there in a rough area, but to be a, a witness, to have an impact. God will plant us in rough areas because God needs his people everywhere. God needs believers in every area. So God says, I know where you guys dwell where Satan's throne is, and there he gives him this commendation. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says, I know your works. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, rough area. And I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that you guys did not deny my name. You did not deny the faith. You did not deny my name. Even when uh, somebody from the church was martyred, was killed for their faith. So we know this about the area that they're in. It's not just anti-Christian. It's not just pro-pagan worship. They're also killed a believer here. They've also martyred a believer here. So they're, they're against the church, not just verbally, right? Imagine, we, we don't know that kind of pressure yet in America. Um, we may know that people disagree with the church. They disagree with our opinions and views, but I don't know about somebody, you know, 
killing us yet, you know, out here. So, um, but imagine that. So God said, you guys withstood that. You guys didn't bow out even when that happened. And I acknowledge you for that. I give you credit for that. I know your works. And I saw that you guys hung in there. You guys didn't bow out. You didn't give up your faith. Even when you saw one of your own get murdered, get killed, be martyred. And, you know, some people do give up when things like that happen. Some people, when somebody died, they're like, God, why? Why would God do that? Why didn't God show up? And we got to be careful about asking why God questions. This because if you want to ask, why tell people this when they get all all happy on the why God? Why would God save you? Ask that. Why God that? Why would God die for you? And you acting like that. Ask that why God question, you know, Um, because I realized that the most important thing that God did for me was die in my place for my sins. Um, promised me eternal life if I believe in him, put my faith in him. I got no promise that says bad things won't happen to me. People I love won't die. Me or other people won't get sick. I don't have that as a promise. Uh, What I have as a promise is that all my sins can be forgiven and I can go to heaven when I die and spend eternity with him if I surrender to him with all my heart. Amen? So I'm clinging to the promises that are and I'll deal with life's realities, whatever they may be. And so Jesus says, look, I know your works and I credit you guys. I acknowledge you guys for hanging in there, uh, even in the face of heavy persecution, even to the point of death. Then verse 14, he says the word but. And he's getting ready to list out now the, the things he has against them. And I would ask everybody here to consider what would God if, if God was evaluating you? And never mind all the good things you think he would say. If he said, but I have this against you, what would it be? Are you aware of? Are there things that you're aware of today as you sit here in church that you would say, "Mm, I know God would have that against me? Hear hear what he says. He says, but I have a few things against you. First thing he says, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So he says, look, I have this against you. First thing that you have there, those that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Notice this, that you have them there. Not that that you hold the doctrine of Balaam, but it's my church. And you have there in my church those that are holding to this false beliefs. So let me explain the doctrine of Balaam and why God don't want it in his church. For you guys that are unfamiliar with the story, in the book of Numbers, you can go back and read it, um, 25 um, it's, it's kind of before you can read 20 to 25 of numbers, but in numbers 25 specifically, you get the gist of it. There was a prophet named Balaam. Um, and I, I this is one of the guys I look at and I'm puzzled. God, why did you gift him to be a prophet? Cause he was a jerk. Um, God, this guy, Balaam, God had him there as a prophet. God would give him messages to speak blessings over the children of Israel. Well, there was a king named Balak and he saw that the children of Israel were blessed and he wanted to pronounce a curse on them. So he thought Balaam could be for him a prophet for hire. He said, Balaam, brother, come here. I'm going to bless you real good because I'm the king. I got a lot of money, a lot of resources. I'm going to give you riches. We are going to honor you. You are going to be a big deal. What I need you to do is go speak a curse over the children of Israel. And then Balaam answered correctly. Initially, he said, well, all I can, I can only speak what God tells me. And he went to God and asked if he could do it. And God said, nope, you go and speak a blessing. And he went and spoke a blessing over the children of Israel. But I want you to note what was foul in Balaam's heart. Because if Balaam is on God's side, he shouldn't want to speak a curse over God's people. Amen. He should want what God wants. But Balaam starts thinking, man, I kind of want that honor and them riches. 
And he started trying to figure out how to do it. He even went back to God asking for permission. Can you imagine that? God, can I, they want me to do that. Can I just, you know, can I speak a, can I, he wants me to, he blaming it on him. But imagine going back to God, trying to figure out how you can, how you can swindle God and letting you speak a curse. And every time Balaam went before the, for Israel, God would give him, God would only let him speak blessing. You've just heard a transforming word brought to you by Pastor Bill Buffington. What's swirling in your mind just now after what you've heard in today's message? Sometimes it takes a bit of time to fully process what was shared. Revelation is definitely one of those books that you have to almost sit and chew on, trying to discern what in the world it all means. But the good news is God's given us His Word to help us know and understand what's ahead. What a gift. He didn't leave it all a mystery. He's revealing things on each page of this book, whether or not you're fully in the know of all that it means in this moment. Keep studying it on your own and digging into Scripture with an appetite that's ready to take in what God has for you. If you like the message you just heard, we're so glad. You'll find more solid teachings like this one from Pastor Bill Buffington at calvaryinglewood.org. Will you prayerfully consider spreading the good news with us? If so, locate the Give tab on our site. Don't forget, that's calvaryinglewood.org. This ministry is an outpouring of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. We're located in Inglewood, California. So if you have some extra time and are nearby, we'd love for you to attend one of our services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If there's a scheduling conflict, come Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We hope that this message has ministered to your heart and you have a little more peace next time listening to it. We look forward to our next time as Pastor Bill teaches in Revelation right here on A Transforming Word.